I'm LBH and welcome to LBH Let's Be Honest Solo Ramblings. So, you guessed it, I'm in the car again. <laughs> I feel like this is a bit of a common theme. So please excuse any motorway noise, any pug snoring, scrabbling and the sat-nav. So, today's solo ramblings is going to be a little bit more about me. Um, I need a very speedy four minute intro which when I listen back, it's just so me, <laughs> so it's so quick, it's so fitting everything in so quickly, it's so talking so quickly that I don't even think people get a chance to take it all in, um, but the great thing about a podcast is you can rewind and replay, so come on, you can do this, so stick with me. So I was wondering what my first solo rambling should be about, um, now the friends who know me know I've gone through a bit of a battle with endometriosis. Um, and those of you who don't know what endometriosis is, it's where the uterine lining, or cells like the uterine lining, grow outside of the womb and outside of where they should be. Now, they can grow everywhere pretty much in the body. The only places they haven't been found, these cells, is in the spleen. And I'm thinking, but I could be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, but spleen is definitely the one place that they haven't found endometrial deposits. So how did I find out about endo? Now, growing up, um, I had really painful periods. So I think I started my period around 12, um, maybe 11, 12, and I, um, I had quite heavy periods, but you know, mum explained that was normal, and she had really bad periods too, as did my aunts and my grandma. So it wasn't as if it was something strange to her either, that was something she'd grown up with. We all just presumed that's what women went through, and that's how it was. So. I remember being at secondary school actually and having to lie in what I used to call the superman position so put myself in recovery position anywhere so it could be on a field at school it could be on the street I know that sounds awful but I was in that much pain I had to lie down because I'd feel like I was going to collapse so to stop myself collapsing I would put myself in recovery before it even happened when I had that feeling so I'd get like um, my ears would block so I'd go kind of deaf my eyes would go a bit funny I'd get a dizzy head and then I would go but I'd come around so quickly so quickly so it wasn't um, too scary and I just got used to it so every month for years and years and years I tend to collapse um, every month and I would put myself in recovery and come back around. Now the doctors put me on microgynin at 14 um, because of my bad periods and what I realise now is the pill masks a lot of things for us women and although it's like an incredible incredible invention for us women downside of the hormones side effects you get from these pills um, and then of course masking some quite serious illnesses so yeah from about 14 to I want to say like 27 I um, remained on the same pill got used to it fine weight was stable worked out ate well didn't seem to have a problem with the pill but my period started to get worse even though I was on the pill um, so again I just ignored that I kind of like just exercised or had a hot water bottle or whatever and then when my mum went through breast cancer and she was told like you know you shouldn't have chemical this and chemical that and she cut it out of your um not only your diet but you know the things you're using shampoo conditioner etc and deodorant and all that kind of thing I decided that I didn't want to have chemicals in my body anymore so I was like right I'm going to stop the pill not because I was trying for a family the opposite but because I thought yeah, you know what what is this stuff going into my body I just want to give this up I was eating clean at the time I'd found Rosie who you guys might know as Miss Nutritionist she is incredible she really does know her stuff and she came to my work to do a talk about energy um, and um, 
nutrition. And you know what? She really changed my view on what I was eating, what I was putting into my body. As if there are any more than kind of like five or six ingredients, maybe less than that on a packet. And if there's anything you don't understand or you can't pronounce, it's probably not good for you. Um, so that really helped me reading labels and stuff. But actually by then I was kind of like cooking from scratch, um, eating lots of organic fruit and veg and you know where I could buying free range and organic meat um, but it's so expensive so I really struggled that time but I literally everything else I kind of added so much more veg to my diet and I've always loved vegetables and fruit but I just added a lot more in I was working out more and my energy levels just went through the roof so I felt so much better off the pill I've been practicing yoga from I'd say about 2007 I got to the stage after meeting Rosie and watching her insane presentation of eating well, yoga for me, reading this incredible meditation book that she recommended and um, just generally looking after myself better. So I had a really good run of a few years where my periods weren't bothering me and I felt like I had, I felt so much happier, I felt so much lighter, I was having a really good couple of years in many aspects of my life, so career, relationship, health, friends, everything, because I just felt so good. Um, so anyway, this story is probably going to ramble on a bit, but I think the point was I was on the pill, I came off the pill, um, and then what I found was towards, I think it was 2015-ish, my periods were getting severely, severely bad again, really, really bad. Um, and I was starting to get some other symptoms which were really uncomfortable, so some like bowel discomfort when I was going to the toilet it was really insanely painful and I would collapse again a lot there's times on holiday when my husband's like not knowing what to do because I literally just collapse off the toilet in absolute agony um, and again I thought that was normal still this is what this is the craziest thing I thought that was normal how the hell is that normal why is that normal why does that have to be normal for us women why we'd go away for an anniversary weekend and I'd bleed so heavily it was just like I don't know, it looked like someone had been murdered, it was awful. So the doctor tried me on things like methanamic acid. Now anyone who's used that before, it thins the blood. So can you imagine if you're heavily bleeding, the blood volume is like 10 times if not more. So I think I tried it once at uni and then I tried it again more recently. So we're probably around kind of like yeah, 2015 now. And then I had a really weird, weird year at work. So I had stomach bugs, I had sickness, I had all sorts of weird things that were completely, I thought, unrelated. And when you're putting them down on your work attendance thing, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense to them. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. It was quite um, difficult for me to come back around from a lot of those things. So the doctor would sign me off so I could recover. Um, yeah, it was a really tough, tough year. And um, towards the end of that year, I think it was the end of 2017, I had like, three UTIs in a row and I've never had a urine infection. I asked my mum, as a child I didn't even have them, as an adult I'd never had them, I was so lucky not to have had to deal with them. And then I had three in a row um, and the doctor was like, we need to get to the bottom of this. My doctor is amazing, he's such a great guy. And he said, we need to get to the bottom of this, something's not right. The fact that you had three in a row is trying to tell us something. So there's protein in the urine, something wasn't right. Um, then in November I got my promotion and I've been working so, so hard towards that. And they'd put me on an attendance improvement program. But I mean, the thing was, there was no really rhyme or reason or 
pattern to my sickness. Um, not that we thought, anyway. So then we're due to go to Bruges for a long weekend um, for Valentine's Day. Looking forward to a little break. All the cheese, chocolate, coffee, alcohol, you know, just to have a great weekend away, the two of us. Um, and I had gone into work and I remember running up the stairs. Now, I used to do HIIT training every morning before work. I know that sounds really like, mm, look at me, how great am I? It was like 10 minutes a morning. So I would get up, go to the toilet, TMI, sorry, get into the room, turn on Davina, do her seven minute fit HIIT training. So it would either be weights for arms, squats, abs, whatever. I'd do a focused area, I'd do the warm up, I'd do the seven minute session, and then sometimes I'd do the cool down or I'd just go and have a shower. You should obviously always cool down after exercise. Please don't follow my, uh, <laughs> don't follow my, my my routine. Um, so I was doing that on like Monday to Friday, then I wouldn't work out the weekend. So really, if you add it all up, so say with the warm up as well, it was probably like 14 minutes maximum a morning. So that's like 45 minutes a week. Every time I did my medical, all the scores were great. The only thing they'd say is, oh, you really you need to do at least this much a day cardio for your heart. And I do think that's true. And you know, I wasn't just doing HIIT training. I think I was still doing yoga at the same time. I walked a lot, but they always said, you need to like get on a bike or you need to run or whatever. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, why would I? I'm feeling great, boom. Like I was feeling so good. Anyway, my point was I ran up the stairs with some coffee. So I'd go and get the uh, coffee, run up the stairs. And I noticed there was only like two short flights of stairs up to our office space. And I noticed I was out of breath. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is weird. I'm, I'm not unfit, like what's going on? Oh gosh, I don't want him to think I'm unfit. I need to like slow down and walk really slowly with the coffees, even though I'm running a bit late and had to queue. I need to walk slowly so I get my breath back to where it should be before I get to him because I just look silly. Because the flight of stairs, they're not big, they're just like 10 steps each, it was silly. So um, anyway, got there, had that, got away with that. Then the next day, I wake up and my period had been like the week before, so I didn't think it was period related. I got really severe pains in my abdomen, like really severe pains. And I thought they don't feel like period pains, but then what if they are period pains? And then I'm like, I, I don't know. I just really didn't know. They couldn't, they couldn't be because the period had gone. I was like, what the hell's going on? So my husband was about to get ready to go to work and I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. And then I went to the toilet and said, wait, I just need to go to the toilet and I collapsed. And I, um, and I started to walk through the kitchen. So our toilet's downstairs. I walked through the kitchen and I nearly fell again and he held me up so I collapsed again in his arms. So he got me to the sofa and I was like, Nick, I'm gonna be fine because I'll just lie here. If it's period related, I'll take a couple of tablets. I'll be fine. I will get myself ready, have, you know, and go to work, I'll be fine. I've got like an hour and a half. So it's not like I need to go there now. I've got time to like recover, have, some, like, have another cup of tea and I'll go to work. So I was like, please just go. So I made him go and then the pain has just got worse and worse and worse. And I was like, this is so weird. And I had shoulder pain, I had chest pain, and I had these pains in my stomach. So I called 111, don't ignore it, go to, you need to go to the hospital now, like get an ambulance. I was like, I'm not getting an ambulance because I've just got pains in my tummy. If it's like period pain, I'm not gonna get an ambulance when someone else needs that ambulance. So anyway, I called my stepdad and he came over and he got me and he took me to the nearest hospital. And I sat there for 13 hours. So they wheeled me down to the, the x-ray place. And I'm like, I think, I really think this is wrong. Can you check? So they checked and yeah, the doctor was like, no, no, definitely chest x-ray. I'm like, it's so weird. I was like, okay, whatever. 
So I let them do it and I came back, back to my chair, my uncomfortable chair. They hadn't fed me all day, I was starving. Um, I wasn't making a fast net. Feeling so painful and so dizzy and a bit like, I felt like I wasn't even there. So anyway, next minute, the curtain opens around my little area and there are four doctors in their full-on scrubs looking at me in absolute disbelief. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, and I thought, why are there four people around me? This is weird. I've seen nobody all day and now there's four people. So they said, they're kind of like smirking, but not in like a horrible way, but in like a disbelief, like what? And one of the doctors said to me, how do you look so well and you're talking and you look fine? Your lung is up here. And she scrunched her, her, her hand into her fist and held it up by her right shoulder. She said, your, your lung is like a wet balloon up here. You have no lung on the right side. How are you talking? How do you look well? Like, that's crazy. So I was like, I was so shocked. I didn't really even know what was happening. My mum's sitting there, sitting next to me. I don't think they even knew what, you know, what was going on. Um, so weird. So next minute I get morphine, high oxygen, <laughs> literally everything, and a bed within like 10 minutes. Can you believe that? Like, that was about 13 hours by that time, 12, 13 hours. And then all of a sudden I get a bed and I get oxygen, high oxygen, and I get um, morphine for the pain. Um, and I think the thing is, I've never been one to make a fuss in that way. Like our family, we just get on with it. If we've got pain, if we're going through something, we've always just got on with it. Um, and I don't always think that's the right approach, but that's what I was doing then. I was just, you know, being strong, being brave. This is fine, this is gonna be nothing. Um, and just carrying on, I guess, just carrying on, sitting here thinking all oh, these poor people around me, they're so much needier than me. They've got so much going on. First day, in A&E was my first time in hospital as a patient and those five days in the acute medical unit were the first five days I'd ever stayed in hospital. I'd only ever been to visit or to see new babies and all the good stuff, you know, not, not that kind of thing. They wanted to do a drain on my lung and um, I was not sure about that because I'd never ever had anything. I'd had no surgery ever, I'd have nothing invasive, I'd been so lucky touch wood up until that point in my life. So I think, how old was I? 32, I want to say. I'd, no, I wasn't what we're talking about, I wish. Shaving a few years off there. <laughs> 34? <laughs> 34. And um, they said, look, you're young, you're fit, you're well. That's why you're able to talk and breathe on one lung and you look well. Um, we don't think, so the specialist said, we don't think you need to do a drain. We just need to give you time keep you on oxygen for five days and then you can go home and rest and then go and see a consultant about your lung. So I was like, okay, cool. Then I had another consultant come in. I think she must have worked for the team and said, right, we're just getting you prepared to do the drain. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Now I was on morphine and all sorts of um, pain relief <laughs> and I was still thinking, no, the specialist just told me I'm healthy enough and well enough to get through this without anything. I'm not gonna go through a really painful procedure which my poor stepdad had to go through, where, yes, they give you a bit of an injection, but it's so painful putting the drain in while you're awake. So they put the drain in, and I'm not trying to scare any of you, but this is what I've heard, um, just to drain all the fluid out of the lung area, and the lung cavity, and the air, to get all the air out. Do you know what, I was happy to wait. Well, I wasn't, it was a really difficult five days in hospital, I'm not gonna lie, I didn't sleep, it was really hard to watch and see what I saw, but, but, my body did its thing, and the lung was pretty much fully inflated, or nearly, by the time I went home. 
So we didn't get to Bruges. We didn't have any cheese. We didn't have any chocolate. But I got out of hospital and, you know, that was the first part of my thoracic endometriosis journey for definite. Like, that was a really big step in me finding out about the endo. So at this stage, I don't know it's endo. They looked at me and said to me, normally, a spontaneous pneumothorax would be in someone tall, skinny, and male. Now, I am not tall. I'm short. I'm not skinny. I'm short and quite, like, muscular. And I am not a man. Well, no, I'm not, <laughs> not a man. So I'm kind of like, okay, but I did you have any impact? Like, have you been doing any, you know, boxing or rugby or whatever? I was like, no. Although I do like to box, no, I don't normally do contact. So I was like, what has happened to me? This is so weird. So anyway, I get a consultation with a lung surgeon for like the week after. And I'd, I'd gone back into work because I was on this attendance improvement program and I was so petrified about losing my job. So I went into work. My boss is like, Linz, what are you doing here? And I'm like, well, I don't want to lose my job. And I've been told if I'm off for another, I don't know, seven days, that's it, I'm a goner. I'd worked so hard, I'd just been promoted, I had all these unexplained sickness, I just didn't, I couldn't even explain it at this stage, I still didn't know that it was related to this lung or anything, so he was like, look, you need to go back to the doctor, like, so I went back to the doctor and the doctor signed me off, and I was petrified about doing that because I was so scared about my job, um, in the meantime I'd seen the lung surgeon who said I had to have surgery, he kind of said to me, it's your choice ultimately, but if you don't have surgery, your lung is going to keep collapsing. So you're going to just have recurrent pneumothoraces. Um, and I was like, mm. I was thinking, I don't want surgery. So maybe I'll just put up with this and I'll just deal with that. And this will just be my new normal. What am I like? <laughs> the difficulty even like, you know, running up the stairs as I normally would without thinking. Just even walking around sometimes briskly, going up a hill, talking. I mean, I don't talk much, but... <laughs> Are you joking? Even my talking, I talk so quickly, trying to grab that breath, it was awful. So I might have a good few weeks and then I'd have a bad few weeks because of the lung. I was like, no, I've got to sort this out. I'm petrified about this surgery. It's life that threatening surgery, but also having a collapses too. So if you've only got one lung and your heart is swinging and it's free, then the problem is there that you could have a heart attack. And that's what I was told. You, know, you kind of do need to get this sorted. You can't just sit and wait like a ticking time bomb for something to happen. So, yeah, it was, it was scary. But I thought, you know what, let's just go with it. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Got booked in. So I think in the February I was in, February I was in AMU, saw the specialist by the end of Feb. And then by the end of March, 28th, my granddad's birthday, um, special day for me, special, special day. Um, I had my surgery enough too. But in all and you know, I'm lucky enough to be still talking quickly here, you know? Um, so anyway, had the consultation, then went in for surgery on the 28th of March, 2018. In my consultation, um, prior to going in for lung surgery, when he said, you know, it's up to you if you have it done or not, but if you don't, then you're going to keep getting weird current pneumothoraces. He said there is such a thing as catamenal pneumothoraces, and I was like, what's that? So that is when um, lung collapses occur due to your period or around your menstrual cycle, and it's normally 72 hours after your um, menstrual cycle. 
What I found is I'd noticed the symptoms of a collapse 72 hours after ovulation rather than after the period. So I don't know if we need to do a little bit more research here or I need to track more, but I've tracked for like two and a half years and it definitely seems to be 72 hours after ovulation that I get the shoulder pain, the chest pain, the coughing and the breathlessness. Um, Anyway, the point is, he said to me, I don't think it would be. He goes, because it's so so rare. I've never seen it before, so it definitely won't be catamine or pneumothorax. So I was like, okay, cool. No problem, that's great. Um, I said, could it be endometriosis? And he was like, I have not seen it, so it would be very, very unlikely. So I was like, okay, cool. So I went off, never having had surgery, um, only having known about endometriosis through my mum, my aunts, my best friends who'd had it. So quite a few people, to be fair. Um, but never anywhere outside the kind of pelvic region. So um, I just was like, he's the expert, he knows what he's talking about. So I was like, anything. So I did a little bit of research myself. I actually did look into catamenal pneumothoraces, even though he said I wouldn't have it. Um, And I was like, interesting. Looked into lung collapse, as you kind of do, I think. Um, And, you know, just kind of clued myself up a little bit more about it. Um, Then went through with the operation so I had to have um I had a spinal tap so like a epidural in my upper spine so that would have meant the upper torso was completely um, numbed and I also had general anesthetic so apparently with the spinal tap recovering the first 24 hours is a lot quicker or a lot better Although, if I'm quite honest with you, it was very painful, so I can't even imagine what it would have been like without that. The thought of, like, a big needle in your back, the thought of, like, a massive needle in your back just really made me think, and then not being able to feel your legs and stuff, that really, like, played on my mind. I was like, ah, I don't think I can ever do that because of that. But actually, it was fine. You could feel pressure, but they literally give you, like, anaesthetic first in the area, and then you've got to stay really, really still and kind of bunch over a pillow and then you could feel pressure and that's it, you can't feel pain at all. And then once that's done, then even like the local anaesthetic thing doesn't mean anything because you're just a bit like, oh, whatever, that's done now. So can't be anything worse than that. Um, so I had that surgery. Um, and you know what? The most uncomfortable thing after, I guess, was the drain. So there's a huge drain that kind of went into the lung cavity and out the side of um, my rib cage. Um, and it was kind of like ribbed, so it's like, pla- like pla- plastic, but like a ribbed plastic. Um, and that went into like a massive like container that collected all the fluid and stuff out of it, which is quite disgusting. So you had to keep that in for like, I want to say like a day and a half, two days. I'm not sure. I was in hospital for about three days, uh, maybe longer. And then when they take that out, that's a bit of an ordeal. <laughs> but when they whip that out, you've got to take a deep breath and cough and they take it out. Um, the pain is just so much better. And then, like, any time you sneeze or you cough or anything, you've got to have, um, like, a pillow underneath your armpit to kind of, like, help with the, like, wounds and stuff to, like, keep it tight and everything so that like, nothing happens with the stitches and stuff. And the pain, just the sheer pain of, like, a cough or a sneeze or even laughing. Sounds such a joke, but even laughing. So after the first surgery, do you know what? Recovery felt okay. I had to walk because you had to build lung capacity. I had to stretch, I had to do all those great physio things to keep myself moving again, but it was a lot of pain and a lot of pain with the diaphragm and lots and lots of drugs I've never ever taken before. Um, so like the oral morphine, um, what else did they give me? Like I guess stomach, um, stomach lining tablets because of all the tablets. Um, I think there's like an anti-inflammatory and 
um, I think I said like paracetamol and, and other stuff as well throughout the day. So it was like every few hours I was taking something. I, I don't even remember what I was taking, but I had a whole schedule that I'd written out so that I wouldn't forget. And then within about, I want to say three weeks, two to three weeks, I had a follow-up. I went to the follow-up and he was like, it's all looking good, you're healing well. Even though I felt horrendous and I was in so much pain still, he was like, you're, you're, you're doing really well. I was like, really? But what I can't help but think is, you know, us women, we put on a face, we look well and we dress well and they think, oh, you look well, you're doing well. Whereas what, if we turned up with our hair all greasy and scraggy and like no makeup on, then what, he'd believe you if you're like, I'm in a lot of pain. So, I don't know, but hey. I'm sure he didn't mean that, but that's what it felt a little bit, because inside I was like in so much agony still after that short period of time. Um, so then anyway, he was like, right, yep, yeah, keep doing the exercise, keep me on touch wood, this all looks fine. Um, and by now, you know, we keep our fingers crossed, but if it hasn't collapsed again by like um, the two, the two week, three week mark, then, you know, it shouldn't collapse at all. I was like, great. He's like, I haven't got your biopsy results though, so we will give you a call when we get those. Um, so then I get a call, I think about a week later. So let's see, that was end of March. So I think four weeks had maybe gone by. And then I get a call um, saying, oh, the um, pathology team are really, really excited. And I was like, what is going on? They found endometriosis in your diaphragm. They've never seen that before. It's so rare. They were really excited. And you could hear in his voice that he was smiling. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, that is not good. That is really not good. So I had holes in my diaphragm that he'd seen within the surgery, and he called them like pepper pot holes. That probably, and he said he thought they were congenital from birth, but actually it was the endometriosis lesions. Lesions, probably the wrong word. Um, what would you call it? Um, adhesions that had attached themselves to my diaphragm and every time I bled on a monthly cycle it would also bleed from that area and it was actually making holes now one guy and he said endo can't make holes two or three other guys have said of course it can make holes like you know all that bleeding and all that it's got its own blood supply and cells it kind of builds up and then the diaphragm is such a thin but such an important muscle it made holes so what was happening is every time I had a cycle catamine or pneumothoracis um, the big bang which I didn't know happened um, would happen when you um, ovulate and that air would need to escape somewhere and the air was actually going through those holes in the diaphragm and the only soft organ in that area was my lung so over time it might not have happened immediately but over time those big bangs were building up and then I was getting full lung collapses but I was the way it was manifesting to me was severe exhaustion really bad chest pain I felt like I was being like trampled on or like Someone had a belt tightened around my chest, coughing, but not feeling ill. So like a really dry, weird cough. So that's where the lung was trying to get kind of oxygen in. And then really severe shoulder pain, kind of like across the top um, of my shoulder and down my arm. And that, um, I thought, was muscle pain. So um, I would go to an osteopath, I would go and have a massage, try and help that. I still worked out. I thought it was just from working out. And actually, these are all symptoms of lung collapse. So anyway, then we found the endo, so we knew it was going to be in my pelvis. So we went back to the GP. GP um, referred me to another gynae to have a laparoscopy. So I went to see the other gynae. We got the date in, and he was like, right, yep, you've most definitely got it there because you've got it in your diaphragm. We'll take a look, and we'll remove what we can, and we'll sort out a treatment plan. So 
I was due to go back, I think, by then, let's say July. So, like, mid-July, I think. And then um, my lung collapsed again. So within six weeks of the initial surgery date, the lung surgery, my lung had collapsed again. Now, if you might remember, the specialist said that was really rare. And normally by two to three weeks, they can cross their fingers. And then if it sticks, it sticks. Great. So anyway, I go back to the lung surgeon. Yep, we're going to have to get this done again. It's quite a severe collapse. It's not just a small one. So let's get it done. This time, we'll stick it really tight with the talc. They use like a, it's called talc, but uh, it's like an abrasive, um, I guess, material against the chest wall lining and then the lung wall lining, and it sticks them together. And he said, and we'll use the bellows and we'll just really like pump them up really <laughs> tough this time and make sure they stick fast. So I had that second surgery, had the spinal tap again, the epidural. They gave me a different anaesthetic, I think, and then afterwards they gave me a different drug because what I'd found is the morphine was just so full on that I just felt horrendous and didn't really want to be on it, so I came off it too soon, and that made me feel awful. Um, But this time they gave me gabapentin, and immediately it made my eyesight go, and I just felt really uncomfortable with that as a side effect, and, you know, I had no one there with me in the hospital, but I would have liked to have been able to text friends or read or look through a magazine, and I couldn't, so or watch TV. So I kind of like said, look, can we change it? And obviously it's not that easy to change that high grade of drug. So I said, look, I had morphine last time. I didn't like it, but my body was fine with it. Can I change that? Um, I had a bit of difficulty trying to change the drug. Oh, she won't take anything. No, I will. I just don't want to take this because I can't see. Just those simple like things. And I clearly had a, like, a nerve related thing that was affecting my eyes. Um, so to take that tablet that did that to my eyes was just a bit scary. So I came off that, um, they moved me back onto morphine, I think. Um, so that really helped with the pain. But initially it was really, really quite dark. And the fact that I wouldn't take anything because it was making my eyesight go completely, um, I really, really felt it. It was really, really tricky. It was really horrible. I woke up in the night in pain, throwing up. It was that bad and it was all just liquid. I'm sorry, TMI. And I was forgetting to press the morphine lever because I was just in so much pain I couldn't even self-administer so it was just horrendous if I think back it's really weird actually thinking back through all of this and um, the way I could talk so matter of fact of it now I think that's just the way I cope with it but it was such a difficult time all I could do is just keep thinking just keep putting one foot in front of the other just keep being positive if you go into these things positively you're going to come out of them positively I'd meditate before my surgeries I'd have pictures of my niece and my dog and you know just all of those sorts of things just to keep me going my husband and like nature and all the things that make me happy I'd have all pictures of those out on the little table in the room before I went into surgery and then I'd meditate before I go in to keep me calm. And I just have a really good old chit-chat with the theatre nurses and things, the people who look after you before you go in. And that really, really helped me. Even though I was petrified and I was scared and all of the above, it just really gave me some peace and calm. And that was really, really, really helpful for me and with the recovery, if I'm honest. So, we'd, so I thought that it was taking a bit long for my initial lung surgery to, for me to recover from it. But actually, it was because I'd had another lung collapse that needed further surgery. So it wasn't actually in my mind or anything. But I thought, maybe it's my mind. Maybe I'm kind of got caught in this, um, I've had this surgery, I'm in pain, and I'm in this cycle that I can't break. So we got a little puppy, um, a little puppy called Bentley. And he has a white pug, and he's absolutely gorgeous. And he was crazy and lively. And everything 
that I needed mentally in that time, but perhaps not physically. So you can imagine being at home after surgery with a, you know, three, no, eight week old pug who just wants to be with you all the time, which is amazing, but wants to jump everywhere, eat, pee, poop everywhere. And you're the only one there to kind of help and, and look after that person. Number one, it was great to have that responsibility to like get up every day and like even in pain or whatever and look after them too. But the pain and the bending over and the picking up, it was exhausting, absolutely exhausting. But but no doubt at all in my mind, he really helped me with my recovery and with the positivity and got me through that. He really did. But then six weeks after getting him, I was back in hospital again. So it was then trying to find puppy care while Nick came in with me to go into my surgery. Then he'd have to go home and feed the pup and come back and see me. It was all a bit of a juggling act. But again, I think it was really good for Nick to have that focus that wasn't work and wasn't me it was just a little pup who needed him and he needed him too really like they could go out on walks together and just have that time out and have time to think and a bit of a breather so yeah I wouldn't change Bentley for the world he's my boy he's my number one um so anyway then I was so obviously I couldn't have my laparoscopy that we'd had booked in because my lung surgery was then in June and I needed at least four weeks they said recovery at least and to be honest it took me months it felt for the first surgery so let me think it was like March 28th and then April May yeah it took more like 10 weeks the first time but that's because I had a double collapse so that makes sense so four weeks after the second surgery I then had my laparoscopy booked for the 23rd of July so I had a flamingo themed party just a bit crazy a bit summery just after my birthday before my surgery because I felt like I needed like not a last hurrah, but I just wanted to have a bit of fun because I knew how the general anaesthetic was making me feel. I knew I had very little energy, so I wanted to just take any opportunity to just like have a bit of fun with my friends and family and the people who had supported me and been there for me, so I really wanted to do something. So I got all the little kids, like little goodie bags, and I really enjoyed doing that. And there were flamingos everywhere, and it was really tacky and cheesy, and it was just so much fun. I really enjoyed it. And I've got some great pictures from like a photo booth that we made up ourselves um, that I'll always remember. So I went in for the laparoscopy and I think I was later in. So I remember actually the guy who came to see me after my lung surgery to see how I was. And he saw the drain hanging out of my um, lung and was like, oh, yuck, no, can't deal with that, can't deal with that. So he obviously deals with all the gyne stuff, no problem, but couldn't deal with this thing hanging out of my lung. And he didn't want to look, he didn't want to see it. <laughs> I remember him doing that, so funny. Um, so then... He, he came in and suggested that after that surgery, we stopped my period so that it didn't try to, like my lung didn't try to collapse again because of the period. So we just stopped it. So I took a drug to stop it. And then like four weeks later, five weeks later, we had the surgery, um, the laparoscopy. Um, and I had to wait quite a long time. I think they had an emergency come in and she was like in so much agony. So she went in first. And then um, it was quite late, I went down, I think it took about six hours, if not more, for that surgery. And they found it everywhere, everywhere you could imagine. So bowel, bladder, pouch of Douglas, rectal vagina wall, my, ov- my right ovary was nowhere to be seen, it was all hooked up and hoisted and stuck together, they couldn't even see it. Um, there were, I think I had cysts, but one of them were like a normal... Um, follicular cyst which is fine that just happens when you have when you ovulate oh I had adenomyosis I was diagnosed with that so it was deep infiltrating in the lining of the womb I had small fibroids I had obviously the diaphragm where else did I have it 
just I'll have to read out the whole list. I will find the list if anyone's interested, but it was everywhere. And he said, naturally, because it was on the diaphragm, it was stage four, like, it, before we even talk about any of the other places. It was in on the bladder. It was in the bladder wall. Um, yeah, crazy, just crazy. And do you know what? I kind of expected it. I felt, even though this might, there might only be, by, bleh, be no logic to this, I felt that if it was in the diaphragm, it was going to be everywhere because it had all that time to get to that stage. And I think had we been trying to have a baby, we would have found out years ago that I had endometriosis and it might not have gone to the lung. I know you can't think that way, but because we weren't and I was so career focused and Nick and I decided it wasn't on our radar, years and years had gone by and it managed to attack the lung, which had like devastating effects on the last two and a half years of my life subsequent surgery last April so that was um yeah that was tough that was a really hard one to recover from I went to Oxford to speak to a specialist to see if she knew anything about the diaphragmatic endo and if she could do anything and I had MRIs and scans etc and in the first and I just wanted to have a chat with her if I'm honest with you about the shoulder pain and how to deal with that because it was the thoracic endo that was really getting me down not I, was, I wasn't even thinking about the gynae side and um, she did a, an ultrasound which I was surprised about because we were talking about the shoulder and yeah it was all over again it had already grown within seven months and we don't know how much quicker it was than that so she said there were two types of endo that said there's some that um, progress really quickly and some that are slowly progressive but mine had grown that quickly that no matter what I had done whether it be nutrition diet exercise because it's congenital because the abnormal cells were there from birth it would have happened anyway so disappointed me a bit because obviously I'd paid to see a nutritionist I'd cut down on alcohol or actually I'd, I'd cut out alcohol I went from coffee to decaf I love my coffee that was like my savior um so yeah it was kind of like it was tough to hear that because you know you try everything and actually it doesn't make a difference because you're still going to get attacked in the same way by it so that was a bit harsh but I do truly believe that if you look after yourself holistically so if you eat well if you exercise and you look after your mental health and like your self-care then you're going to feel better than you would if you didn't do any of that even if it's not going to actually help with the actual you know endometriosis itself or whatever other illness you might have I do think it really helps so anyway I had to then go into surgery with her and it took another six hours and it was inside the bladder wall quite deeply this time um she was the one who said it was deep infiltrated adenomyosis um she had to loosen my ovaries again because I'd got stuck up um it was in the rectovaginal wall again and in the bowel and I was it's so weird when I went for the surgery a month after seeing her I was get, every time I ate anything, I had to rush to the toilet. Any time I drank anything, I had to go to the toilet. So actually, the intensity of the symptoms I was getting from the bladder endo and the bowel endo was intensifying within a month, which is absolutely crazy. So um, yeah, so she did her did her magic, and I must admit it was the hardest recovery. And do you know what I think? The reason I think that is, and it's not because of anything she did. Yes, it was a long surgery. Yes, they touched lots of organs. And they always say when you touch a lot of organs, um, kind of the organs can go into spasm. And that can cause, like, that can take time for them to all settle down and to recover. Um, it was more because it was a shock. I'm not saying the others weren't a shock. They were. But I was on a bit of a roller coaster. And I was riding those waves. But this time, I went to speak to her about how to manage the pain in my shoulder. Because she 
said that she'd seen someone with diaphragmatic endo before. But actually, I didn't expect to have surgery again so quickly. So I think without being able to prepare myself or get into that headspace, it just really knocked me for six. It was really difficult. Um, really, really difficult. And then she couldn't do anything with the diaphragmatic endo because it was too dangerous. So, And that's a story I kept getting. When I hear from specialists in America, they say you can remove the endo from the diaphragm. Even the lung surgeon said to my gynae, you can remove it, like it's easy. But that's because that's what he does. He works with the diaphragm, he works with the lung. That is his space. But um, with the, the gynae was a bit nervous to do that because the diaphragm is such a thin, thin muscle. And if you do something wrong there, then that can impact someone's breathing. It can impact, um, so it helps, the diaphragm helps get rid of waste and all sorts of things in the body. It's not just breathing, and I learned all of this over the last two and a half years. Um, so anyway, yeah, I was a bit disappointed that the diaphragm couldn't be addressed. So even after all of that surgery, the pain in my shoulder, the pain in my chest, the pain in my diaphragm. So I've always worked out, and when I do ab exercises now, even reverse crunches or anything, the diaphragm feels bruised. It really, really hurts. It's so painful, I can't really explain. And I get like a um, cramp around the back of my rib. Um, so almost like the bottom of the diaphragm, I get like a crampy feeling, which is really achy. So I don't know, it's just really a real weird one. And the thing I found is because the gynae specialists don't know about diaphragmatic endometriosis and the thoracic specialists don't know about endometriosis, you don't have anyone to support you in between. So, and they don't tend to want to work with each other. I don't know if it's a political thing or it's very difficult to get them both in the same operating theater. I don't know. I did ask, I tried, but that wasn't an option. But um, I would really have loved the thoracic surgeon to say, look, show me where the endo is. And then the gynae go, that's the endo. And the thoracic surgeon go, no problem. I'll cut and staple that and we'll just repair the diaphragm. And that's as simple as the thoracic surgeon was talking about it. That's what you do and you can put something in if there's anything wrong they can re they redevelop and they rebuild the diaphragm so that's what they're used to but if they just gone in together perhaps I could have had a better quality of life when it comes to the breathing so it took a really really long time for me to recover second time around and then this January gone I was diagnosed with um, BPD so a breathing pattern disorder so they think they used to call it like hyperventilation. So I think, so I think um, instead of BPD, they used to call it hyperventilation, but they felt that that got confused with lots of different things like panic attacks, etc. But what it actually is, it's where from the pain of the surgeries and from me being scared to breathe deeply due to the pain of the lung surgeries, I was kind of not only struggling with reduced lung capacity, but also scared to take a deep breath. And then what I was doing is breathe, breathing in my aerobic space, so like at the top of the chest. So that space is normally reserved for running or doing like, you know, high impact stuff on your fight and flight, not for day-to-day -day talking, walking, and getting on with your day-to-day -day life. So I was referred to a respiratory physio. And one of the funny things she said to me, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, was you need to learn to slow down when you're speaking and take a breath in between because that will really help too and I just thought that was hilarious because everyone who knows me <laughs> knows that I just I can't I just get so excited and enthusiastic about things and then blah, 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 my, my speech literally goes 20 to the dozen so imagine when you're struggling breathing and you're walking uphill 
and you're trying to talk, it literally, my head was, would go dizzy. I'd get pain in my diaphragm. I'd get tingly toes and hands. It was awful. The side effects of the breathing pattern disorders were just awful, really weird. Because you're not getting oxygen to your extremities, to the bits that you need, and to your brain. So, um, yeah, that was a really slow process to slow everything down, remember to breathe, and just take time. And, you know, after a while, it just kind of, like, fixed itself. But I had to do a lot of work in the background to get there. Um, and now I know if it ever gets like that again, I just need to go back to some of the things she taught me and calm it down. So that happened literally in January, and then we're in lockdown in March. Um, so I went back to work in Jan. Then I got ill again with the breathing pattern disorder and just didn't feel great at all. And then I came back to work, I want to say at the end of March. So just as everyone was kind of getting into the swing of working from home. Now I've been working from home for like two and a half, well, two years or something. So I was used to it because uh, with my phase return and occupational health had kind of said about working from home, um, lessen the commute and everything with all my surgeries. So um, I was kind of used to it. It was weird watching others try to get used to it when you've been doing it for so long and you just think, you just take it for granted that you just got into your own stride. But yeah, no, I, I found it fine. It was just then after surgery and after having time off, building that resilience um, and the other diagnosis was just like, felt like another thing to add to a really long list of things. So it was just a bit like meh. Um, so I did say in my guest podcast that I want to quote for the day. And I must admit, following lockdown, I'm sure like many of you it's given you time to think about what to do or what makes you happy and what makes you unhappy um it certainly has given me that chance i wouldn't say i've had time to do that necessarily being at home being around people who make me happy being in my home which i love and i love to decorate and that's really my thing um it just made me think about what makes me happy in life so let's think about a quote then my quote of the week is in the waves of change, we find our true direction. Now, you may have seen this on my socials, but, and it is a bit cheesy because I had my first surf lesson yesterday and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But what I would say is when things change and feel a bit scary and different, you definitely can find a new and different vibe. And if you just go with it and, you know, let's stay with the wave analogy, if you just go with that and you ride those waves, yes, you're going to get downs. Of course you are. That's life but you're going to get some highs too and they're going to be incredible so yeah you just go out there and get that just do it I mean I may have gone through a lot the last few years but I am so grateful to be alive and with everything going on in the world with the pandemic you can either worry about it which is completely normal you can not worry about it which is probably a bit strange or do nothing at all but the thing is regardless of any of those feelings whatever you do it's out of your control. It's still not going to change. Whether you're a warrior or you're not, nothing's going to change. So you choose how you feel in these times. Um, and you choose to make the best of it or you don't. But it's not... It's not defined by the pandemic, you know. You can still do things with your families. You can still do things with your friends. It's just in a different way. So... In the waves of change, find your true direction.
thank you so much for listening I really really appreciate it again um, please share with your friends please follow me at LBH Lifestyle on Instagram and please stay tuned in follow on Spotify you can get me on Google Podcast I'm on Anchor there's lots of different podcast um, sites that you can get me on so please do and I will speak to you next week with another guest thank you so much Thank you.